Well, good morning. If you have your scriptures, open them up with me to the book of Mark. We'll be in Mark chapter 1. Glad that you've joined us for worship this morning. My name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here at First Colony Christian Church. Uh, and we are so excited for you to be in worship with us. If you haven't picked up an announcement card, be sure you pick one up before you leave. They're out there on the uh, little podium out in the hallway. A couple things coming up um, that are important for you. But we're still in Mark for a little bit uh, as we work through the book of Mark here in our sermon series, Invasion of the Lamb. Um, a few weeks ago, the school that I teach at, Forbin Christian, asked me to take over their social media account for 24 hours and to post pictures and updates and to try to give an impression to the community of what a typical day in the life of a freshman Bible teacher was. I obviously had to edit a lot of words and feelings and emotions um, because we wanted a positive connotation going out into the community. And so uh, they asked me to take pictures of the different classes and different places I would be, took a lot of selfies with the kids, things like that. Um, Today in the scriptures, we get a kind of picture of a 24-hour period in Jesus' life. So he has just begun his ministry in the Gospel of Mark. He's come out and he's announced the kingdom of God is here. All of God's promises are being fulfilled. And now we get to see the kingdom kind of in action. And we get really a 24-hour period snapshot into Jesus' life. Mark probably puts this here, one, because it's the start of his ministry. And two, this is probably not too unfamiliar of a day for Jesus. This probably somewhat of a common 24-hour experience in the life of Jesus. So we'll pick it up in Mark 1, verse 21. Mark 1, verse 21. Jesus has started preaching. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the gospel. He's called his first disciples, Simon or Peter and Andrew and James and John. And now in verse 21, they, Jesus, Simon, Andrew, James and John, went into Capernaum, a little small city on the top of the Sea of Galilee. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So on the Sabbath, the holy day, Saturday, he goes into the synagogue where the Jews are worshiping, and he starts to teach. Jesus at this point is probably somewhat well-known. You would have had to have been invited to come teach in the synagogue. Uh, so he's known enough to have the invitation. He doesn't just walk in and start teaching. Okay, He comes into the synagogue on the Sabbath in Capernaum, starts teaching, and we're told, verse 22, they, the people there, were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. And not as the scribes. If you are a marker in your Bible, you might underline or highlight that word authority. This will play a big role in this passage. He taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I've had a lot of weird things happen to me as I've preached. And a lot of weird things happen in service. But this has never happened. Okay, And I'm kind of praying it never does. Uh, I don't know how I would react. Here's how Jesus reacts. He rebukes him. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. Your translation there in the English softens the Greek a little bit. The Greek is a little harsher. Um, Maybe a better translation would be, Shut up. He says, Muzzle yourself. He says, Stop talking and get out of him. Jesus rebukes this unclean spirit or this demon. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, What is this? A new teaching with... Here's that word again, authority. They hear his teaching and they're astonished because of his authority. They see him cast out this unclean spirit and they are amazed because of this teaching with authority. He commands, they said, even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. 
Now, Simon's mother-in-law, now this is who will come to call Peter, one of the inner three of Jesus we're reading through here. Um, if Simon has a mother-in-law, that means he is married, okay? So Martin Luther would always point out this verse when he was in debates um, with the Catholic hierarchy of his time about whether priests should be celibate or whether they could have marriage or not. And he would always point out, hey, look, one of Jesus' disciples was married. We don't know much about his, her, uh, his wife. We don't know if she traveled with him as he followed Jesus uh, or anything like that. But we know that Simon, at one point at least, was married. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a the fever. They told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. You'll notice here, Jesus only starts his public ministry of healing after the Sabbath is over. Um, this is a small detail that you might easily miss here. He heals in private in the house of Simon's mother and father. But then at evening at sundown, he begins his public healing ministry. This is a clue for us from Mark because there's going to be a time coming when there's a lot of controversy about Jesus healing on the Sabbath. Right now, Jesus is staying out of trouble. He waits for the sun to go down, for the Sabbath to be over, and then he starts healing people. You also see another clue that's going to become a big theme in the Gospel of Mark, which is this thing called the Messianic Secret, or this, this, this phenomenon throughout the Gospels where Jesus tells demons and sometimes people not to tell other people about him. So the, the demon here, the unclean spirit, recognizes Jesus. He says, you're the Holy One. What have you come to do with this? And he tells him, stop talking. I don't want you talking about me. Be quiet and get out. And then he is healing people and um, casting out the demons as the whole town gathers around him. And he's commanding them not to say anything because, he says, they knew him. A few weeks ago, a few of us got together and we read the Gospel of Mark out loud all at once and heard it performed for us. One of the things that stood out to me was this messianic secret. Over and over and over again throughout Mark, Jesus seems to be telling people, shh, don't. Don't spread this too much. I don't want too many people knowing about what's happening here. And scholars have always wondered, why is Jesus telling the demons to be quiet about him? If it was me, I would probably have a different reaction. I'd be like, go tell all your demon buddies, right? All right? I'd be like, who's your daddy? They'd be like, you are. And I'd be high-fiving people and chest-bumping people. Jesus, though, wants this on, on the down low. He, he doesn't want this to go around too much. Lots of reasons, perhaps, why this is the case. Maybe Jesus doesn't want his fame to spread too much too quickly. Popular people get attention, but they also get attention of the authorities. The authorities, as we know, will come to crucify Jesus. Perhaps it's not his time. Perhaps also Jesus doesn't want his fame to spread out of control in the sense that a lot of people had a misconception about what the Messiah would be like and what he would do. They thought he would come violently overthrow the Romans, and Jesus is not about that. And so he wants to be able to present his message to people in person and not have these rumors about him going about from town to town. But you have this uh, messianic secret begin here in this passage. And the passage as a whole presents to us this day in the life of Jesus where Jesus' fame starts to spread. Word starts to go about the region of Galilee, the northern part of Israel, about this man who cast out the demons, who's teaching, who's healing people, and his fame is beginning to spread throughout Galilee. He has proclaimed the kingdom, and now in this day, on the Sabbath, in the synagogue at Capernaum, and then in Simon and Andrew's house, he enacts the kingdom. Um, he brings the kingdom into reality in this local place at this specific time. The kingdom of God, God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven, is being enacted here um, in Capernaum. 
So the, the kind of emphasis of this passage is the fact that Jesus has not only this kingdom announcement, but also this kingdom authority. This kingdom power, exousia is the Greek word. It comes from um, the same root as author. It's this kind of original power. He kind of seems to, to own the world around him. He's coming and bringing God's reign. This is what his announcement is about. And he goes into the city and doesn't just say it with words, but he does it with actions. We'll see this is a theme throughout the Gospels and throughout Acts, even his followers. They not only announce the kingdom, they bring the kingdom. They enact the kingdom. They act in kingdom ways. They bring God's reign to bear in the situations and the people around them. You see Jesus' kingdom authority in three ways here in the text that we have read. First, his teaching. He's teaching in the synagogue. The people are astonished and amazed because they say he has authority. And specifically, his authority is in opposition to the authority of the scribes. Now, the scribes would have been this professional class of people who were literate. Not a lot of people back then were literate. And they would have been the ones usually who would teach in the synagogues. They were kind of your professional lay leaders, okay, if you will. And the scribes taught, and they taught in a very specific way, which is they taught based on the authority of other people. So in the normal day on a Sabbath in a synagogue, a scribe would get up and say, as Moses said, this and this and this and this. And they would interpret Moses' interpretation, Or they'd get up and they'd say, as Rabbi so-and-so said, this and this and this and this, about what Moses said about this Old Testament passage. They would interpret another person's interpretation. It seems, though, that Jesus is just giving his own interpretation. He's not talking about the scriptures. He's speaking scripture. Do you see the difference there? The people who are hearing Jesus teach seem to have this feeling that they're not hearing an interpretation, but they're hearing the actual voice of God. They're hearing the actual author of what other people are interpreting. We're not told what he's teaching in the, uh, the, the synagogue on the Sabbath. Um, most likely it has something to do with this kingdom announcement that's kind of the core of his message. But he's teaching, and people are astonished at his teaching, astonished at the authority that he has. It seems like when Jesus speaks words, people recognize it as the voice, the true voice, the voice that created all things and knows exactly how life is supposed to work. Then you see Jesus' kingdom authority, not only in his teaching, but also in this exorcism here. So he has this encounter with the unclean spirit. It's interesting, the unclean spirit knows who Jesus is. Ironically, in the Gospel of Mark, demons or unclean spirits are usually the only ones you can count on to get Jesus right. So humans, including Jesus' followers and the crowds, will often misunderstand who Jesus is. Um, But the demons almost always recognize him um, for who he is. The demons recognize him, the unclean spirit says, I know who you are the Holy One of God, then he asks, why are you here? Have you come to to destroy us? This comes right after the wilderness scene. Remember, Jesus goes into the wilderness and faces Satan one-on-one, mano-a-mano. And now he comes out to a kind of outpost of Satan's reign, where this human being has been overtaken by this alien spirit, and he casts the spirit out. It's interesting to note, again, the demons always know Jesus is, but they don't always know why he's come. And that's an interesting difference. They know his person, they know who he is, but they're not quite aware why he's there or what he's up to. They have some kind of sense that he's there to destroy them, right? Or take their power away from them to set up God's reign instead of their reign. But they're not quite sure how that's going to work or what that's going to look like. Um, It might be because evil, the demonic forces, don't understand the way of love, the way of sacrifice, or the way of service. Um, So they understand perhaps that Jesus is the Son of God, but perhaps don't understand why he's here in Galilee, 
in this fragile form as a human, um, why he is going around from town to town making himself vulnerable. Um, in fact, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians, if they recognized who he was and if they realized what God's plan was, they wouldn't have crucified him because they played right into his hands. But they don't understand the logic of love. They don't understand the logic of self-sacrifice. So they, they recognize who he is, but they go, why, why are you here? What are you doing right now? How are you trying to take our reign from us, our, our rule from us? And Jesus exercises the demon. We don't normally think of Jesus as an exorcist. If we were listing off titles for Jesus, what, what was he? What did he do? But exorcisms are a staple of his ministry. I mean, top three things that he's doing. He's teaching, he's healing, and he's casting out demons. Jesus the exorcist um, would make a great movie. I don't know why no one's done this yet. Jesus, Jesus the exorcist. Um, it's odd for us. We live in a time and a culture where this kind of supernatural, um, we look at it very skeptically, okay? But this is a very common part of most of the world's experience throughout history, particularly in Jesus' day. What would have been astonishing to these people um, at the synagogue on this Sabbath day in Capernaum is not that there was an exorcism. To us, that's a, that's a unique thing. We think, how odd, there's an unclean spirit, he's controlling a person, that seems so different from our experience. To them, though, this is an everyday thing. They believe in unclean spirits. That, I mean, they just accept this as a natural part of the world. They possess people. What's most spectacular about Jesus' exorcism here is not that he does one, it's how he does one. Most exorcists in the ancient world, and there were many of them, even Jewish exorcists, would cast out unclean spirits, but they had a long, lengthy process to do so. It involved a lot of mechanical elements, like incense, herbs, different sort of tools. It involved a lot of incantations or invocations. There were a lot of kind of magic formulas. It involved usually the process of a day or two. And usually the exorcist would take a small fee, right? This is what they did for a living. Jesus' exorcism is not especially unique because he casts out an unclean spirit. It's how he does it that astonishes everyone. He just speaks to it. A short conversation. He just chokes it and throws it out. He says, shut up, stop talking, and get out of here. That's what's astonishing or amazing to these people in the synagogue. Is he's an exorcist. Now, again, to us, that's pretty astonishing in and of itself. But to them, it's the way he's an exorcist. It's the pure, simple, unadulterated authority that he has to simply say, leave, get out of here. Jesus shows up and he casts out this unclean spirit. And then he goes into Simon's house, Peter's house, and the mother here has a fever. Um, fevers are, are much more serious in the ancient world than they are today. This is a pre-antibiotic world, pre-Advil, Excedrin. Um, and, and he goes and he heals her. Again, not so uncommon for people to be able to be healed or to have healers back then, both back then and back and now. There are people who claim to have healing powers and claim to be able to heal people. For all kinds of different reasons. I was actually reading an article this week about the placebo effect. Are you familiar with the placebo effect? Um, for as much as we know about the world and how our bodies work, there's a lot that we don't know. And a lot that just is really mysterious to us. One of these things is that most human conditions can be cured by a placebo. Um, in fact, that's how we measure whether medicine actually works or not. Is we compare it to the effectiveness of a placebo. Um, and some of the most effective medicines we have are really only a fraction better than a placebo. I, I mean, it's kind of remarkable how this kind of like sugar pill, placebo, um, 
can convince our brains, however it psychologically works or physically works, right, to, to be healed. And I was reading this article, apparently the placebo effect goes beyond pills. So you can have like fake knee surgeries or fake ACL reconstructions and it actually cures people. Like they walk and they run and they, and they didn't actually go through the surgery, right? They just thought they went through the surgery. I mean, there's all kinds of ways, right, that the world works in this mysterious way and our bodies work in this mysterious way. Back then there were people who claimed to heal whether through medicine or whether through magic or thinking or all kinds of things, now there are still all kinds of different ways people are healed. Again, though, it's the way Jesus heals this, this mother. It's the way he heals this woman. There's no formula. There's no magic incantation. There's not even a prayer. He just touches her and lifts her up, and she's healed. The fever goes when she begins to serve him and the other guests who are there. Jesus has this pure, pure kingdom authority. You'll notice here that the kingdom Jesus is bringing, God's reign that he is inaugurating in the world, that he's starting in the world, is a holistic reign. Um, it involves more than just people's sins being forgiven, which is what we often reduce Jesus' kingdom to, Jesus' mission to. He came to forgive us of our sins. Well, he did come to forgive us of our sins. And he did come to take the guilt that we have over the wrong things we've done and to assuage our consciousness and to, to, to make us understand that God loves us and forgives us. But when Jesus shows up in a town, his mission is not just to say God loves you and your sins are forgiven. His mission is to actually make that small little area where he's present look different, feel different, act differently. It's to transform that area of the world into something that looks more like God's will. In Mark's narrative world, in, the, in the, the world that Mark's telling us about, it's a demon-infested world where demons and unclean spirits have overtaken people. It's a fever-infested world where fevers and sicknesses have overcome people. It's a poverty-infested world. And when Jesus shows up, he says, God's will is not for human beings to be sick. That's a result of the fall. God's will is not for human beings to be possessed by unclean spirits. That's a result of the fall. God's will is not for people to be socially or politically excluded. That's a result of the fall. And he transforms it. Jesus' kingdom, his kingdom mission, is about taking every single thing in our lives that's wrong or out of place and making it right and putting it back in place. Whether that's our minds with his teachings, the way we think, the way we analyze, the way we react, whether that's our spirits with some sort of spiritual oppression, or whether that's our bodies themselves with ways that our bodies aren't working right. Jesus comes so that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you are familiar with C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, um, there's a passage in the Chronicles of Narnia where Aslan, the Christ character, is coming and beginning his ministry. The, the land of Narnia has been in winter, this kind of unending winter where it's always winter, but it's never Christmas. Like, worst case scenario, right? Um, always winter, never Christmas. Everything is dead because it's winter. There's snow everywhere. The white witch has kind of taken control over the world. It's this gloomy, dark place. But Aslan comes and invades. And as Aslan is on the move, um, C.S. Lewis says, all of a sudden spring starts to slowly creep in on Narnia. And wherever Aslan goes, the winter turns into spring. And Christmas shows up. And then all of a sudden, plants that are dead start to become alive again. And places covered in slush and snow start to become green and full of life again. There seems to be the same picture here of Jesus. Wherever he goes, all of a sudden, God's will is made a little bit more clear. 
a world of darkness and demonic oppression and sickness is now made into a world of life and life abundance. Jesus' kingdom is coming here. We should read this as, and the rest of the healings and exorcisms we'll read throughout Mark, as kind of border skirmishes. These are kind of battles on Jesus' way to the war. And the war will be fought on the cross and through Jesus' resurrection. This is where Jesus fully brings the victory of God's kingdom, fully pays the price um, that is required for God's will to become reality on earth as it is in heaven. As N.T. Wright says, the healing that Jesus began this Saturday in Capernaum is finished on the cross. This, though, is one instance of Jesus enacting the kingdom um, in this town, in this area, with his unique kingdom authority, which comes over every aspect of the lives of these people in Capernaum. As we, we look at this and read the story, um, I think there are two ways that this applies to us, two ways we might um, live into this text this morning. The first is you and I, uh, just like these people in Capernaum, are called to, are invited to experience Jesus' kingdom authority. Jesus, Christians believe, is still alive to this day and still at work to bring his kingdom to this earth. Um, he has not disappeared from the scene. He's at the Father's right hand, and he's still on the move. Aslan's still on the move. This is the point of the resurrection. This is why we worship on Sundays, because it's a little mini celebration of the Easter. Um, we're not coming to remember some dead guy, right? I mean, he's alive, and he's at work, and he's powerfully on the move, sending us out as part of that process. And you and I today, just like those people in the synagogue at Capernaum, just like Simon's mother-in-law, just like the people in the town who crowded around the house, are invited to receive his kingdom authority, to experience his kingdom authority. Again, over every aspect of our lives, our minds, our spirits, our bodies, in all different types of ways, we're called to experience the kingdom that he has come to provide for us. I'm still amazed how often even professed Christians will live according to their own reason or their own way of calculating out how the world should work or how they should live, instead of being astonished or coming under the teachings of Christ. So in Capernaum, these people are amazed at the teachings of Christ. They recognize when Christ teaches, there's something unique and authoritative about it. They hear in Jesus' words, the words of the author of life. And, and you and I, as, as, as Christians, as people called to follow Christ, are called to, again, have our minds transformed under the teachings of Christ, to, to, to hear his teachings and to be astonished and to be amazed and say he teaches as one with authority, not as someone who's simply giving his interpretation, but as someone who is the interpreter, as someone who is the author of life, the one true voice. We're called to, to take Jesus' teachings about who God is, what he's like, what salvation consists of, how we should live with our time and our money and our relationships. And we're called to take those seriously and obey them. And so often, even professed Christians, I think, don't really allow their minds to be captivated by Jesus' kingdom and Jesus' teachings. We go default mode with what we think is common sense about how we should live or how we should love or how we should forgive. But we're called to, to receive Jesus' kingdom authority into our, our minds, even in our spirits. Um, oppressive spiritual realities. I know that we have a hard time in a post-enlightenment scientific revolution world believing in the supernatural, believing in things like demons and Satan and unclean spirits. Um, 
I would say that it's not too far of a stretch, I don't think, if you're a theist, so if you believe that God exists, to believe that other supernatural beings exist, uh, such as perhaps Satan or the demonic or unclean spirits. I think that's a small step. Do you get what I'm saying? And I think it's an equally small step in the other direction once you deny that unclean spirits or demons or Satan exists to then wonder, well, then why even believe that God exists? Why believe that anything supernatural exists? Um, and, and there's this unique phenomenon in a world where, despite the fact that we are in a civilized civilization, uh, after the scientific revolution, after the Enlightenment, right, where we learned all these things about the natural world, about biology, about how the body works, how the mind works, um, where we still believe in the supernatural. And this goes against every prediction of all the intellects and philosophers uh, around the time of the Enlightenment and the time of, of the modernity dawning in the world. They thought once we really started to figure out how the body worked and how the mind worked, all of a sudden we'd have no room for God anymore, right? We wouldn't need God to explain things. But in fact, the opposite has occurred. Even in the civilized world, belief in God is still very, very high. I mean, the majority of people still believe there's something more than what we can measure and what we can observe and what we can analyze. Again, I think it's a small step to believing that there is um, other supernatural beings which were created by God, some that have turned bad. Um, we're still, in fact, I think as a society, haunted by this idea that maybe there are things that go bump in the night. My favorite scholar uh, is obsessed with World War II, and he says after studying World War II, he still has to think that there's something deeper behind the evil of World War II, behind Nazi, uh, the Nazi oppression of the Jews, than just the culm culmination of these personalities yeah. and ideas. Mm -hmm. That if you add all the evil people up, it still doesn't equal what happened to people in the world. Um, that there, there's still something, some, there was something else driving this, making it bigger, kind of um, working in and through those situations. Um, and, and still today in our world, I think you'll find, um, even with the knowledge that we have about our bodies and psychology, um, there seems to be this, this haunting sense that perhaps there's more out there. Perhaps there are oppressive spirits, unclean spirits, that work in and through situations. Um, one of my favorite preachers gives this advice. He says, always shoot in both directions. He says, it's not always easy to tell what's an unclean spirit versus what's maybe a sickness, right? Some of us looking at this man in the synagogue would maybe say, he has epilepsy. He's convulsing, right? Or maybe he has some mental disorder. As someone who has a mental disorder, has been diagnosed with clinical depression, I'm sensitive to this kind of thing, right? I understand. Um, when I feel depressed, I don't think I'm being oppressed by an unclean spirit. I think there are chemicals off in my brain, right, that need to be medically addressed. Um, but I don't know this for sure. And so he says, shoot in both directions. Don't ignore one over the other. Don't just choose one or the other. Um, so he says, don't just pray for something to go away. Pray for the cancer to go away. Go get chemotherapy, right? But don't just get chemotherapy and don't pray at all, right? Also pray that there's any kind of unclean spirit or demonic force at work that God would remove that, that God would um, take that away. I think that's good advice. I don't think there's anything to be lost there on either side, right? Shoot in both directions, um, medically and spiritually. I, I think there's nothing wrong um, with that. With our bodies, um, Jesus came so that we might be healed, so we might experience the kingdom life. Um, so often, I think, especially again in our context as wealthy Westerners uh, who have access to some of the best health care in the world, we miss out on the huge promise of Jesus healing over our lives. Uh, I don't need Jesus to heal me that much because I have modern medicine. I have the capacity to spend large amounts of money 
actually seeing very specialized people to, to go and, and to heal me and to work on me and things like that. In a, in a poverty-stricken world, though, in a world without basic access to health care, um, people take this idea a lot more seriously. That one of the things Jesus came to do was actually heal human bodies of things that are wrong with them. Um, most the, the average Christian today worships in a kind of very charismatic community where they experience healings as part of their worship service, um, where Jesus' kingdom continues to manifest itself in this way. There are healings. Um, we often sometimes pray for people to get healed half-heartedly, um, as if we don't honestly believe Jesus has the authority to take someone's body and to heal it, or as if we don't believe that that is God's will. Um, Jesus is definitely not a magic genie who heals at our every beck and command. Um, there are lots of factors involved in healing, but um, there's one thing that we know for sure, which is that when the kingdom comes, um, human bodies that are deformed or are not working properly are transformed into healthy, fully functioning, fully flourishing human bodies. Um, we know that in some cases, perhaps uh, God's will is not for healing in that moment. Paul had an oppression and illness, and he prayed over and over again for God to take it from him. God says, no, right now I'm going to use you in your weakness. From Jesus' example, it seems like our default mode should be that God doesn't want people to be sick. Jesus sees people who are sick, and he says, that's not the kingdom, and he heals them. Jesus never shows up to somebody and says, no, that's just what you're going to do for your life. But we know perhaps there are cases where God says, it's not my will for you to be healed right now. It's, it's my will to work through your weakness right now. We know as well that there are cases where people's faith plays a role in their healing. Um, this is a, a theme that comes out throughout the Gospel of Mark as well. Jesus will say, because of your faith, you're healed. Uh, he'll go to one town and not be able to heal people uh, because they don't have enough faith. In Nazareth, he'll say, I can't, I can't do any miracles here. You people aren't working with me. Um, again, though, I don't think that means every single case we can boil down to saying either we can blame God, it wasn't his will, or we can blame you because you didn't have enough faith, right? I, I don't think those are the only two factors in the equation when it comes to healing. Um, it's a time for persistence in prayer. There's other free agents in the world, both spiritual and um, human. Um, we live in a very complicated world. Um, but, but God is not one of those complicated factors. God's kingdom is not as complicated as we sometimes think. God has come um, so that we might be healed. Um, I would encourage you, if you know someone who, who needs to be healed, or if you yourself are experiencing a, a physical infirmity, that maybe today as you read the story, you... Step out in faith and, and ask the Lord to heal you and expect him to heal you and know his, his will for you um, is to heal you. We're called to experience his kingdom authority in our lives. Our minds, our spirits, and even our very bodies are called to experience um, what God's will is here right now um, as it is for eternity and as it will be for eternity. We know that as Christians one day we're headed toward a world where God's kingdom will be here in full. Not in just parts and pieces as we experience it but fully, which means we'll have resurrected bodies with no sickness, the scriptures say, and no death, and no pain, and no suffering, and no tears. And so now we experience that in part. Um, one day that we know that we'll experience that in full. That's what God's full, perfect plan is for us. And then lastly, we're called to um, walk in and spread and expand Jesus' kingdom authority. If you flip to Mark chapter 3, you'll see that this authority that Jesus has he explicitly gives it to his disciples. So this is not something that Jesus just holds on to and uses as a trick of his own to become famous. This is something he kind of delegates out to his followers. In 3.13, he went up on the mountain and called to him those he desired. They came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. 
the same authority, the same exousia he gives to his followers. He says, you go out into the world and you preach, you announce the kingdom, you cast out the demons, you heal the sick, you go bless the world, expand my kingdom authority so that people may know who I am and what I have come to do. I think sometimes the church gets so caught up in talking about the kingdom when, when we need to shut up and go do the kingdom and go act like kingdom people and go to places and people around us and bring Jesus healing, bring his transformation. This is why the church is called to feed those who are hungry, to clothe those who are naked, to heal those who are sick. We're called to go out and act like Jesus acts, to announce and be the kingdom. Holistically, again, in, our, in people's minds and in their spirits and in their bodies, we're called to bless them and to befriend them and to announce the kingdom. The church, you and I, I think need to learn how to continue to grow in our ability to speak in authority and to act in authority the way that Jesus spoke and acted in authority. And I think as we learn to do that, we'll find, one, the saving power of God at work in us and around us and through us, and then, two, opposition from dark forces, just like Jesus faced opposition. So as today we're confronted with Jesus' kingdom authority, I think in the passage there are two people we should imitate, two people we should identify with and follow after. The first is actually the unclean spirit. Not often will I tell you to act like a demon, okay? Um, but this is one of those cases where the, the, the demon, the unclean spirit, has it right. He recognizes who Jesus is, what he's come to do. You are the Holy One of God. You've come to destroy everything that tears down and breaks apart humanity and creation. And we're called to confess that same thing. This is who Jesus is. This is what his kingdom is about. This is what he's about still to this day. And we're called, I think, to imitate the, the woman here. Um, Simon's mother-in-law, who, who is healed, who's lifted up, who receives Jesus' kingdom, and then serves him. And then serves him. Feminists reading this text have pointed out that it's a little suspicious that Jesus seems to heal this woman just in time for supper. Okay? Kind of playing in this <laughs> patriarchal role of, of men and women. Um, you'll find, though, in Mark, Mark actually lifts up women quite a bit. Women in Mark tend to always perform very well, whereas the men in Mark don't always perform very well. This word for service here is a very key word. It's where we get our word deacon from. It's actually only used of women, not used ever about a man. Um, so, so Mark is lifting up this woman here. Uh, she's not just kind of fulfilling her traditional role here. She's playing an important part as she serves Jesus um, and, and goes out and, and blesses him and the people around her. This is what we're called to do, to be lifted up, to receive Jesus' life, to receive his kingdom authority, and then to, to serve him and serve the people around him. So today we come to the table, we're invited to the table, and we come to celebrate the victory of Jesus' kingdom. We come to celebrate his death and his resurrection. We come to celebrate the ways we have experienced his kingdom, the ways that we hope to experience his kingdom. We come today with requests, with longings, for people to be healed, for minds to be transformed, for spirits to be set free. We come to take in Jesus' body and blood so that we might experience his life, we might experience his kingdom. Would you pray with us?